This special episode of New Retina Radio is supported by Genentech, which is responsible for its content. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the podcast. This is Dr. John Kitchens from Retina Associates of Kentucky in Lexington, Kentucky. In this episode, we will be talking to two retina physicians about their experiences learning the surgical techniques for a new, innovative drug delivery system for the treatment of neovascular AMD. First, we have Dr. Carl O. from Tennessee Retina. Carl, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. I'm happy to be here, and particularly to be here uh, with Alexandra. That's a great lead-in, Carl, from the Cole Eye Center in Cleveland. We have Dr. Alexandra Rachiskaya. Welcome, Alexandra. Great to be here with you guys. Thanks so much. Okay, before we dive in, we'll go over the indication statement, boxed warning for Sosimo, and I'll provide a brief overview of the drug delivery system and how it works. Sosfimo, ranibizumab injection, is indicated for the treatment of patients with neovascular or wet age-related macular degeneration who have previously responded to at least two intravitreal injections of a vascular endothelial growth factor or VEGF inhibitor medication. The Sosfimo implant has been associated with a three-fold higher rate of endophthalmitis than monthly intravitreal injections of ranibizumab. Many of these events were associated with conjunctival retractions or erosions. Appropriate conjunctiva management and early detection with surgical repair of conjunctival retractions or erosions may reduce the risk of endophthalmitis. In clinical trials, 2% of patients receiving a ranibizumab implant experience at least one episode of endophthalmitis. Susvimo is an intraocular, long-acting port delivery system that enables continuous delivery of ranibizumab into the vitreous. As a refillable implant, Susvimo is surgically placed in the vitreous in an outpatient surgical center, and refills are performed as an in-office procedure approximately every six months. Susvimo dispenses a customized formulation of ranibizumab over time through passive diffusion down a concentration gradient into the vitreous cavity according to Fick's law. The delivery system includes a porous metal release control element specifically designed for ranibizumab, which allows for controlled continuous delivery of the drug over time. Retinal surgeons should refer to the instructions for use and the procedure guides for a more detailed explanation of both the implant and the refill procedures. So Carl, I'd like to start with you to just kind of review where we're at as far as the treatment landscape for exudative age-related macular degeneration. Sure, John. Well, the huge uh, evolution uh, in our treatment of wet AMD was the introduction of anti-VEGF therapy, you know, in 2006. And that has really been our mainstay and continues to be. It involves regular injections of anti-VEGF medications into the eye. These intravitreal injections are done anywhere from uh, one month to sometimes three month intervals individualized for the patient. And with appropriate treatment, we've been really quite successful at maintaining and occasionally even improving vision of patients with neovascular AMD. And Alexandra, I think one thing that's been borne out time and time again is the relationship between number of injections and how patients do. Can you comment on what we found? 
Yes, I think uh, we, as Carl has alluded to, we have wonderful clinical trials showing that uh, different anti-VEGFs work well in neovascular AMD. However, when you look at the real world, and uh, this is what we see in our clinics, we can see that there is a relationship between the number of anti-VEGF injections and vision outcomes. Yeah, and I'll add to that, Alexandra, hand-in-hand hand with that goes a desire to have great outcomes. And that's been one of the frustrations of our current treatments is that we all want wonderful outcomes for our patients, but virtually every real-world study has shown that our typical outcomes fall short of what we achieve in the pivotal clinical trials. The American Society of Retina Specialists 22nd Annual Preferences and Trends Survey for 2020, discussed here with their permission, found that the top two unmet needs of retina specialists are how to reduce treatment burden and ensure long-acting sustainable delivery. Additional concerns were developing new treatment mechanisms of action, improved efficacy, and improved safety. Carl, can you talk to us a little bit about SUSVIMO? Yes, SUSVIMO uh, is a new therapy that involves an implant surgically placed uh, in the scleral wall, covered by Tenon's capsule and conjunctiva, and filled with a highly concentrated version of ranibizumab. This is done in the operating room. Uh, the device releases drug into the eye over many months, and the contents of the implant can be refilled uh, in the office at perhaps intervals as infrequently as every six months. And what we've seen in the clinical trials so far is that SUSVIMO allows us to achieve results for our patients equivalent to those seen with monthly injections. So Carl, when you're looking in your clinical practice and you're starting to integrate SUSVIMO into your practice, who are going to be those patients that you look for? Who, who's the ideal candidate for SUSVIMO? The ideal first candidates, I think, would of course be a patient who has shown a good treatment response to anti-VEGF therapy. That's essential. It needs to be a patient who um, is generally healthy and who in particular has a healthy ocular surface because we're looking at something that will uh, rest you know, on the scleral wall and beneath the conjunctiva and tenons for quite a long period of time, it's important that the patient not have some uh, bad ocular exposure, severe dry eye, a really thin sclera, a number of conditions that we typically don't have to think about as much when we're looking for patients who need intravitreal injections. So these additional concerns will be very important with SUSVIMO. We also want to make sure that the patient is one who will be particularly uh, willing to monitor the appearance and the feeling of their eye. Not that patients don't tend to do that, but we won't want early warnings from our patients if there's anything that's suspect about the surface of the eye, not just the quality of their vision. I would add, if I if I may, uh, John, I think when you when you think about these patients, we're dealing with elderly population, so I think it's important also to take in consideration the general health of these patients because it is a surgical procedure. Um, I routinely um, uh, would consider asking these patients about their anticoagulation status 
and whether they can hold their anticoagulation uh, for the surgery. Uh, also important to note um, that uh, Sasvima could potentially be used both in phagic and pseudophagic patients. Uh, so it doesn't depend on that. And to the point that Carl made, you know, if they've had prior surgery um, on conjunctiva, any glaucoma surgery or let's say sclerobuchal, something to consider because you really don't want to be dealing with conjunctiva that might be particularly thin or scarred in any way. Um, I know we'll talk a little bit more later about the technique. The conjunctiva becomes very important player here. Those are fantastic points, Alexandra. Almost as important is who is this not a great candidate for? And I think you really summarized that beautifully. So let's move on to talking a little bit about the surgical technique, because that's really where the meat of this podcast is, is going to lie. Uh, Dr. O, kind of walk us through a high level step-by-step -step of the surgical technique to implant Susvimo successfully. Sure, John. Uh, we can think about this surgery as having seven major steps, each of which might have some steps within them. So, of course, we've got to have the operating room ready with all of the specialized devices necessary uh, to implant uh, the Susvimo implant. The initial step for the eye is creation of a fairly large, at least six by six millimeter uh, conjunctival antenons pyridomy. So this is an incision at the limbus and then radial to the limbus with a nice flap of conjunctiva antenons reflected backwards, exposing the underlying sclera, which is where we'll make our incision to implant the device. Once we have a nice pyridomy, we then prepare the implant. So there is a very elegantly designed tool that's used to hold the implant uh, to push it into the eye, but that tool is also used to stabilize the implant when we first fill it with the special concentrated ranibizumab solution. And that has to be done within a certain time window of implantation. So we fill the implant with the drug solution, have it sitting there next to the patient and ready for implantation, then turn our attention back to the eye. We measure a 3.5 millimeter width uh, place for uh, the scleral incision. This is parallel to the limbus, about four millimeters back from the limbus. And then with an MVR blade, carefully dissect downward to expose the underlying uh, pars planar choroid. And it's very important that the incision be 3.5 millimeters in width and not wider. This is essential for a good fit of the device. And we have special calipers that we use both to first mark the points for the incision and to ensure that the incision's the proper width. Carl, can you talk about how you use a laser probe to ablate or cauterize the exposed pars plana choroid? And before we discuss, I want to note that this step of the surgical technique was developed for the latter clinical trial and has been critical in helping to prevent the complication of vitreous hemorrhage. So with a laser, we apply overlapping one second burns uh, to cauterize the choroid until we see the tissue shrink a bit and then actually watch a little vitreous bubble through. Once we have that endpoint, we're very confident that we can uh, enter the eye with minimal to no risk 
of hemorrhage from the wound. Because the wound can sometimes be enlarged by the laser, we recheck the wound width again to make sure that it's no more than 3.5 millimeters. If it's longer than 3.5 millimeters, we can throw a permanent suture uh, near the end of the wound to bring it to the proper length. Then a 3.2 millimeter uh, blade is used to make a single stab incision into the vitreous cavity, making sure to enter in a direction toward the center of the eye and not toward the patient's lens. Uh, once the incision's made, uh, the implant, which is in the special device for implantation, is simply placed over the incision and pressure fitted into the wound. The implant has a bit of an hourglass uh, shape so that it actually self-seats itself. Once you push it down into the wound, it sort of slides down and holds itself with a little neck. And then there is a flange that is larger than the scleral incision that sits flush against the scleral wall. At this point, we then do a very careful closure of conjunctiva and tenons, bringing it back up to the limbus, making sure that the device is covered nicely and that there's no excessive traction uh, on the edges of the wound so that we avoid or reduce the chance of conjunctival or tenons retraction postoperatively. So I think it's important to point out, though, that it's really critical that the appropriate intraoperative handling followed by secure closure of the conjunctiva and tenons capsule, and really any early detection and surgical repair of conjunctival erosions or retractions may reduce the risk of endophthalmitis. Alexander, I want to walk through this with you, but it, I would like to just ask you for a few pearls on each step. So when we're looking at the pyridomy, Alexander, I think one of the most important things is identifying tenons capsule, something we're not that familiar with. Any pearls on how to best identify tenons so that we don't just macerate it, lose it, so we respect it? To your point, John, you know, tenons are so crucial because when we close, again, we want to close the tenons and conjunctiva uh, because we really want to minimize any risk of exposure. We want to cover that uh, device really well. So I think one, uh, one thing that I keep in mind as I operate is Exposure, exposure, exposure. So to get a good view, I actually use tractional suture, uh, which uh, helps me move the eye and have a very nice exposure. So when I make that pyridomy, you know, I'm very careful with my instruments not to create any buttonholes. And then I actually, once I make a radial incision, I put my instruments and bring the tenons up to the limbus. So I kind of when I cut, I cut both tenons and conjunctiva at the same time because we know the tenons insert a little bit more posterior, about uh, one to two millimeters back. And um, you can always, um, you know, one of the tricks, you can always put a little bit of BSS and the tenons turn a little bit whitish so you can identify where your tenons are. But these are, these are uh, patients who um, whose tenons might not be as, as pronounced as somebody who's 20 years old. So very meticulous dissection. I feel like, um, to Carl's point, this is the surgery where we have to pay attention to all these numbers, you know, and he talked about the size of the wound, the tenons, because it, each step really builds on, on the, the next step. And it's so important to follow, um, kind of the algorithm and be, be meticulous about it. 
You know, Carl mentioned the exact 3.5 millimeter width of the scleral incision. Why is that so important? Well, it's it's crucial uh, because um, as we as we uh, put the device, we want to make sure that it sits very in a snug manner, you know, because we'll talk a little bit later about refill and you don't want too much space around the device as you refill, for instance, in the clinic. So I think uh, it's it's one of these uh, situations where you, you know, measure twice, cut once. You really want to make sure you're not just, you know, uh, going over and, and making an incision without measuring. And another point uh, that Carl brought up is it's it's important to remeasure and being aware how you handle uh, the edges of the incision because as we for instance do the uh, the laser ablation, it's you know you want to kind of open the wound and you take your forceps and you start touching the edges of the wound, but you really don't want to do that because you want to um, avoid any trauma to the edges of the sclerotomy. In fact, you might want to press a little bit away and just gape it uh, for the laser treatment, and that way you really keep the edges as pristine as possible. And then finally, Carl emphasized the conjunctiva and tenons closure. Any pearls, Alexandra, for the best tips and techniques for closing those tissue layers? I think it goes back to uh, the first steps of how you open it uh, and how you give yourself enough exposure. So you really, when you bring it back, you're not pulling too much. You know, you, you're very gentle with your conjunctiva and uh, don't, don't create any buttonholes. And I think it's, some people do a separate closure of tenons and conjunctiva. Some people do it together. I think there is no right or wrong way as long as you had those tenons over. You really don't want to just close the conjunctiva. And it's fine to, uh, to put more than one suture. Uh, the idea is to have a well-covered implant. And um, I think it's, it's, it's such a key thing. It's, it makes us think back to uh, days when we did some glaucoma surgery, which is a while back now. But, you know, I think as, as retina surgeons, we don't think, we don't, we don't really respect conjunctiva, to be honest, right? When do, we, when do we operate on conjunctiva? When we close after scleral buckle. It doesn't have to be precise. But here, it's really a key step in the, in the surgery. It's, the surgery is not over in this case until, con, until conjunctiva is closed. It's a great point. Carl, where do you think surgeons will get kind of caught up uh, with this procedure? Where is it? Where would you advise your partners or your friends to be careful or that they may struggle with certain aspects of this surgery? What we've seen in the clinical trials is that the few cases of endophthalmitis are strongly associated with retraction or exposure of the implant due to some problem with the overlying conjunctiva or tenons. And in these trials, every surgical implantation has been videotaped. Every refill exchange in the office has been videotaped. So when a patient has uh, an adverse event, uh, we can study this data and try to understand what led to it. And so it's very clear that conjunctival erosion or retraction is often associated with suboptimal handling of those tissues at the time of the initial surgery. Too much traction on the wound edges, the wound, uh, the peritomy not being brought all the way back to the limbus, not being anchored with a little bite of sclera to really make sure that it won't pull back. And so by doing that, 
we have a tremendous opportunity to reduce the incidence of uh, these adverse events. So that's very important. So Alexandra, you are a little earlier in learning these techniques uh, than Carl. Uh, what can you tell us about someone who's just coming into this susvimo surgery? What sort of things were you not expecting that were different or difficult or easier than you would expect? I think I would agree with Carl. If you look at the steps themselves, they're not challenging. You know, we probably do some more challenging things in some other instances, but there's some new steps and there's uh, some uh, things that you need to pay attention that we usually don't pay attention to. Uh, so I would say that was uh, more of a challenge than, uh, you know, than the steps themselves. And for instance, you know, we don't do, at least I have never done, um, you know, laser ablation of pars plana, you know, and what response to see, right? When, do, when enough is enough? And when you see that vitreous kind of bubble up, is that okay? Which of course it is. Um, but, you know, it's kind of things you, you might have not seen before. And, um, and so I found it uh, very helpful to, to have the training uh, that was provided because it, it really normalized the surgery for me. And I knew all the steps before I was actually doing it on the first patient. And that's what I found uh, quite helpful, you know, talking to my colleagues um, and doing some of the training. So Alexandra, what were some of the things that you found most useful as far as helping you to, you know, prepare and, uh, for this technique? Well, I think there is so many great resources of how one can prepare for this. Um, and I found them all useful for different purposes, I would say. Uh, for instance, um, I found that learning from the virtual reality uh, exposure that we had was really helpful to kind of hone down the general steps of the surgery and kind of get the feel uh, for the surgery. It was also a lot of fun to do um, the virtual reality. Uh, also, I think uh, talking to people who've done a lot of the surgeries and maybe observing somebody can be extremely helpful to get those tips and tricks. What I find actually most helpful for my style of learning is watching a lot of surgical videos. And as Carl has alluded, um, the beauty of, uh, of uh, Sasvimo is there's been all these videos recorded of different surgeons doing the surgery and doing refills. It's such a wealth of information. And seeing somebody who is an expert comment on the surgeries and not only what is going well, but also what might not be going so well is really helpful for a learner like me. Because I, when I'm, whenever I'm in surgery, you know, I think uh, of all the potential things that can happen. So knowing what to anticipate, I think sometimes is more important than just knowing the steps. And um, so I found that um, extremely helpful. And to Carl's point, you know, um, when you prepare for a surgery like this, I think you, ahead of time, you need to make sure you have all your instruments, you have everything ready for a successful surgery, and you should probably do that, you know, a week ahead of time, depending on your, on your surgical center. But what I like to do for a new surgery like this, so I'm not, you know, thinking during the surgery, how long is my incision going to be kind of the night before to go over those steps and remember those key points and, um, and key uh, tips and tricks. I think that's 
that's really helpful for me. Well, we've talked about this being a new technique. What's What should be a learning curve? Should physicians feel that this is going to take them five cases, 10 cases? What should they expect? That's a great question and a hard one to answer. I think for every surgeon, there'll be a different number of cases, but so much has to do with what Alexander has talked about, that the surgeons who are new to Susvimo now will have the benefit of watching all of these videos and hearing the experience of many people who've done them already. So that's a big head start in terms of being prepared. I do think that, I don't think it takes that many cases to become proficient, but I do think it's probably better, at least the way I learn, to try to have those cases scheduled relatively close to each other, whether they're the same day or successive weeks but you wouldn't want to do one and then wait two months and then do another one. I learn a lot better, you know, on the, on the days that I've had several of these in one OR day, you know, the third one just seems so easy compared to the first, you know, until it really becomes automatic. Uh, I liked to do early on sort of a dry run with my OR staff where we sat there with all the tools out and sort of talked through what each step was. You know, you're going to hand me this now. I'm going to set this down over here. That doesn't take very long uh, to do, but that, that was really very helpful. And the other thing is, uh, because these cases are done uh, under local monitored anesthesia, I let my patients know, you know, this is a relatively new procedure. And because of that, you're going to hear me talking a lot with my staff about what we're doing. And so we will stop and we will talk about each step as we do it. And uh, I think if the patient understands that, they know, okay, he, you know, he or she, whoever the surgeon is, being very, very careful. It's not that they don't know what they're doing. They're just really being very cautious about it. So those are the sorts of things that have helped me uh, gain more confidence, I think, and improve faster than perhaps just doing the, the routine type of cases that I'm used to over all these years. You know, one of the things I found really helpful was during the study and, and going forward from the study, Genentech will have SDSs or surgical device specialists. Alexander, talk to us a little bit about the SDSs and the role they play in surgery. Well, I, I think um, that person is extremely helpful. So SDS is somebody who comes and um, is there for the surgery. They are in the operating room and they are in your operating room and they've been to many operating rooms of other surgeons. So um, they're very good to run things by if, uh, if you have a question or you, you're struggling at some point, because even though they've never uh, operated on a patient themselves, they've seen many, many cases and they have great suggestions. Yeah, they're like the little angel on your shoulder. Mm -hmm. um, I can tell you our SDS was fantastic. And he would say, Doc, I think you ought to make that a little bigger. And your initial gut reaction is to kind of go, wait, I'm the doctor. And then you stop and think, hold on a second. You've seen hundreds of these cases. And you kind of look at it and go, you know what? You're right. I'll make it a little bigger. So it's an incredible resource uh, that, that we have access to uh, as we're doing our first few SUSFEMOs. So, Carl, you've really nicely kind of outlined how to do the surgery, but there are some key considerations for postoperative care. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yes. 
These eyes have to be managed a bit more like the eyes of someone who's had glaucoma filtering surgery or maybe for the older doctors thinking way back to an extracapsular cataract surgery, a vulnerable eye that really has to be protected. So for the first day and night after surgery, we ask the patients to keep their head elevated, uh, lying on at least three pillows uh, when sleeping at night. They wear a shield for the first week and really need to avoid rubbing the eye, you know, or, or pushing on the eye, anything that might traumatize that really important uh, tenons and conjunctival pyridomy that's been placed so carefully over the susvimo implant. We also ask them to limit really strenuous physical activity for a month. So all of these things, I think, just really show that unlike a lot of our other retinal surgeries, we're very worried about the surface of the eye in patients who've had the sesfimo implant. And Alexandra, a big part of this is the refill procedure. Can you walk us through a refill procedure? Yeah, absolutely. So maybe I'll give a brief overview and then uh, we can talk about the particulars. Um, I think the refill procedure is uh, something that requires some mastering. Uh, it does, it's not um, the same as the intravitreal injections that we might be used to. So uh, first, of course, the patient's pupil has to be dilated. And uh, when you position the patient, you want to recline them in exam chair to almost supine position at approximately 20 to 30 angle to allow optimal visualization of the implant. Uh, you want to prep the eye by applying broad spectrum uh, microbicide um, uh, to periocular skin, eyelid, and ocular surface before you begin the refill exchange procedure. And uh, the refill exchange procedure is performed under topical anesthesia. Uh, usually, the, any additional anesthesia is not uh, required. So when you uh, when you start preparing the um, the refill for the refill, you have your medication. Uh, and uh, sterilely, you draw it up using the filter needle, and then you replace the filter needle with refill needle. And uh, after that is done, uh, you don't want to cap uh, the refill needle uh, unless you absolutely have to. And uh, you come over, and uh, then very important is uh, visualization of the center of the uh, septum, because you want to make sure you come uh, right in the center, and the angle is key. You want to be uh, perpendicular to the sclera. It's so important because if your angle is off, you're not going to be successful at the refill. And after that, uh, you once you're in, uh, you apply very gentle pressure, and it takes a couple seconds for the refill to occur, and you actually can see the return of the old fluid in the needle. And um, after that, you gently remove uh, the refill needle, applying pressure with a Q-tip. You check patient to make sure they have at least count finger vision. And you also perform an indirect exam to make sure that the implant is in the right position. Carl, any tips and pearls as far as doing a successful refill? Well, Alexander covered it beautifully. I think the thing to understand for doctors who haven't done this is that it's quite different from just a regular intravitreal injection. With an intravitreal injection, we have much more latitude about where the needle enters the eye, and even the angle 
at which it can safely enter the eye without striking, you know, something that we don't wish it to. I think those are great points. I think a real key point is, is that if you meet resistance, don't keep pushing. You know, they just, you can back out a little bit, redirect your needle if you know you're in the septum and try to, you know, enter again. I also find standing on the opposite side of the eye I'm doing gives me the best angle for that superior temporal, perfectly perpendicular angle. And using my research assistant to kind of tell me you need to be tilted a little bit more or a little bit less. Because I'm looking through this, the high magnification loops, seeing things under very high magnification, it's often easy to get disoriented as far as exactly the angle of your syringe. Mm -hmm. So having that extra person there to kind of guide you can be really, really helpful. In, in our last segment here, I'd like to talk about Genentech's commitment to the Sesfinimo training program. Uh, Carl, can you talk us through the different different types of trainings that, that Genentech offers for this surgical technique? Yes. I mean, as you've alluded to, John, I've never been part of any surgical study that has had so much scrutiny and so much thought put into each step. You know, typically we're said, you know, here's a device and here's a new technique. Now, you know, go at it. Here, uh, we've the, the way in which the surgeons have been trained uh, has been continually refined, and the resources we have for that are continually expanding with our experience. So Genentech has a suite of uh, techniques and devices uh, av available to help new surgeons, and those would begin with uh, e-modules, an online type of uh, modules of surgical techniques uh, and, and procedures to study. I think, as Alexander mentioned, what's really always helpful is hearing from your peers. So there will be peer-led, and we, we look forward to these being in-person as, as the world changes, but peer-led didactic teaching ses sessions on surgical techniques with lots of videos and lots of discussion and examples of cases. The surgical device specialists are really fantastic, and I think that's what really has made this program uh, so successful. That's these folks that come in and really uh, take you by the hand through the training with virtual reality technology, with model eyes, uh, and then into the first cases in the OR and into the first refill exchange procedures uh, in the office. And having those SDS personnel there, I think, will really ease the transition for surgeons new to Susvimo. And Alexandra, what really stands out to you? As someone closer to the initial training, what were some of the best parts of that training program? I think, uh, you know, all of these approaches are great, and they really complement each other, right? So it's wonderful to learn from your peers. You get your hands-on experience uh, via virtual reality. But then you have these e-modules that you can go back to at your own pace again and again and review them before your surgery, um, before your first case. And, of course, uh, the a surgical device specialist is, like we mentioned, that angel that's, that's with you in the operating room uh, to kind of uh, guide you through it. So I think uh, all of these approaches really work well together, um, and I think they will make, um, hopefully, people comfortable with those first cases. You know, one of the best parts about all of that is the fact that it, it's not like you finish your training and you're done. You don't have access to these things. 
I guarantee you that SDS will be there whenever you need them to be there. Um, you'll always have access to the online e-modules. You'll have access to your peers. And I'm sure we'll tell stories about, you know, at meetings and conferences for years to come about, you know, best practices and ways to improve upon the implantation technique. So it's really incredible what uh, Genentech has put together, such a holistic training, something that we haven't really ever seen in retina before. In closing, I really want to thank Alexandra, Carl. You guys have been fantastic. I think this is a great podcast in addition to all the things that Genentech is doing for this training. I can imagine surgeons listening to this podcast before they do their first Susvimo implantation. I want to just point out that we are going to have two other podcasts talking about Susvimo. Developing an Innovative Drug Delivery System for Neovascular AMD is a podcast that discusses the history and development of Susvimo. Another podcast, Exploring the Clinical Development Program for an Innovative Continuous Delivery Treatment for Neovascular AMD, covers the experience of one of the investigators in the clinical trials. We hope you will tune into these podcasts as well. Again, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, John. Thanks, John. Thanks, Alexandra. Please listen carefully to the following important safety information. Susfemo is contraindicated in patients with ocular or periocular infections, active intraocular inflammation, or hypersensitivity to ranibizumab products or any of the excipients in Susfemo. The Susfemo implant and or implant-related procedures have been associated with endophthalmitis, rheumatogenous retinal detachment, implant dislocation, septum dislodgement, vitreous hemorrhage, conjunctival erosion, conjunctival retraction, and conjunctival blebs. Patients should be instructed to report any signs or symptoms that could be associated with these events without delay. In some cases, these events can present asymptomatically. The implant and the tissue overlying the implant flange should be monitored routinely following the implant insertion and refill exchange procedures to permit early medical or surgical intervention as necessary. Special precautions need to be taken when handling susfemo components. In the active comparator period of controlled clinical trials, the ranibizumab implant has been associated with a threefold higher rate of endophthalmitis than monthly intravitreal injections of ranibizumab. 1.7% in the susfemo arm versus 0.5% in the intravitreal arm. When including extension phases of clinical trials, 2% or 11 of 555 of patients receiving the ranibizumab implant experienced an episode of endophthalmitis. Reports occurred between day 5 and day 853 with the median of day 173. Many, but not all of the cases of endophthalmitis reported a preceding or concurrent conjunctival retraction or erosion event. Endophthalmitis should be treated promptly in an effort to reduce the risk of vision loss and maximize recovery. The Sustimo dose or refill exchange should be delayed until resolution of endophthalmitis. Patients should not have an active or suspected ocular or periocular infection or severe systemic infection at the time of any Susfemo implant or refill procedure. Appropriate intraoperative handling followed by secure closure of the conjunctiva and tenons capsule and early detection and surgical repair of conjunctival erosions or retractions may reduce the risk of endophthalmitis. 
Regmatogenous retinal detachments have occurred in clinical trials of Sosimo and may result in vision loss. Regmatogenous retinal detachments should be promptly treated with an intervention, for example, pneumatic retinopexy, vitrectomy, or laser photocoagulation. The Sosimo dose or refill exchange should be delayed in the presence of a retinal detachment or retinal break. Careful evaluation of the retinal periphery is recommended to be performed and any suspected areas of abnormal vitreoretinal adhesion or retinal breaks should be treated before inserting the implant in the eye. In clinical trials, the device dislocated or subluxated into the vitreous cavity or extended outside the vitreous cavity into or beyond the subconjunctival space. Device dislocation requires urgent surgical intervention. Strict adherence to the scleral incision length and appropriate targeting of the pars plana during laser ablation may reduce the risk of implant dislocation. In clinical trials, a type of implant damage where the septum has dislodged into the implant body has been reported. Perform a dilated slit lamp exam and or dilated indirect ophthalmoscopy to inspect the implant in the vitreous cavity through the pupil prior to and after the refill exchange procedure to identify if septum dislodgement has occurred. Discontinue treatment with Sosfimo following septum dislodgement and consider implant removal should the benefit of the removal procedure outweigh the risk. Appropriate handling and insertion of the refill needle into the septum while avoiding any twisting and or rotation is required to minimize the risk of septum dislodgement. Vitreous hemorrhages may result in temporary vision loss. Vitrectomy may be needed in the case of non-clearing vitreous hemorrhage. In clinical trials of Sosfimo, including extension phases, vitreous hemorrhages were reported in 5.2% or 23 of 443 of patients receiving Sosfimo. The majority of these hemorrhages occurred within the first postoperative month following surgical implantation, and the majority of vitreous hemorrhages resolved spontaneously. Patients on antithrombotic medication, for example, oral anticoagulants, aspirin, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, may be at increased risk of vitreous hemorrhage. Antithrombotic medications are recommended to be temporarily interrupted prior to the implant insertion procedure. The Sosfimo dose or refill exchange should be delayed in the event of site-threatening vitreous hemorrhage. The use of PARS plana laser ablation and scleral cauterization should be performed to reduce the risk of vitreous hemorrhage. A conjunctival erosion is a full thickness degradation or breakdown of the conjunctiva in the area of the implant flange. A conjunctival retraction is a recession or opening of the limbal and or radial peritomy. Conjunctival erosions or retractions have been associated with an increased risk of endophthalmitis, especially if the implant becomes exposed. Surgical intervention, for example, conjunctival or tenon's capsule repair, is recommended to be performed in cases of conjunctival erosion or retraction with or without exposure of the implant flange. In clinical trials of Sosfimo, including extension phases, 3.6% or 16 of 443 of patients receiving Sosfimo reported conjunctival erosion in 1.6% or 7 of 443 of patients receiving Sosfimo reported conjunctival retraction in the study eye. 
appropriate intraoperative handling of the conjunctiva and tenens capsule to preserve tissue integrity and secure closure of paradigmy while ensuring placement of sutures away from implant edge may reduce the risk of conjunctival erosion or retraction. The implant and the tissue overlying the implant flange should be monitored routinely following the implant insertion. A conjunctival bleb is an encapsulated elevation of the conjunctiva above the implant flange, which may be secondary to subconjunctival thickening or fluid. Conjunctival blebs may require surgical management to avoid further complications, especially if the implant septum is no longer identifiable due to the conjunctival bleb. In clinical trials of SUSFEMO, including extension phases, 5.9% or 26 of 443 of patients receiving SUSFEMO reported conjunctival bleb or conjunctival filtering bleb leak in the study eye. Strict adherence to the scleral incision length, appropriate intraoperative handling of the conjunctiva and tenens capsule to preserve tissue integrity and secure closure of paradigmy, and proper seating of the refill needle during refill exchange procedures may reduce the risk of conjunctival blood. Visual acuity was decreased by an average of four letters in the first postoperative month and an average of two letters in the second postoperative month following initial implantation of Sosfema. Minimize air bubbles within the implant reservoir as they may cause slower drug release. During the initial fill procedure, if an air bubble is present, it must be no larger than one-third of the widest diameter of the implant. If excess air is observed after initial fill, do not use the implant. During the refill exchange procedure, if excess air is present in the syringe and needle, do not use the syringe and needle. If excess air bubbles are observed after the refill exchange procedure, consider repeating the refill exchange procedure. Use caution when performing ophthalmic procedures that may cause deflection of the implant and subsequent injury. For example, B-scan ophthalmic ultrasound, scleral depression, or gonioscopy. In the neovascular AMD archway study following the Sosfemo initial fill and implant insertion, Refill and implant removal, if necessary, procedures up to the week 40. The most common, or greater than or equal to 10%, adverse reactions up to week 40 were conjunctival hemorrhage in 72%, conjunctival hyperemia in 26%, iritis in 23%, and eye pain in 10%. Females of reproductive potential should use effective contraception during treatment with Sosfemo and for at least 12 months after the last dose of Sosfemo. No studies on the effects of ranibizumab on fertility have been conducted, and it is not known whether ranibizumab can affect reproduction capacity. Based on the anti-VEGF mechanism of action for ranibizumab, treatment with Sosfemo may pose a risk to reproductive capacity. You may report side effects to the FDA at 800-FDA-1088 or www.fda.gov backslash medwatch. You may also report side effects to Genentech at 888-835-2555. Please see additional important safety information in the full Sosimo prescribing information, including box warning.